Hear this. This is the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 2. This is God's word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I know that's a lot, and it might seem very confusing. So let's ask that God would help us understand. Sound good? All right, let's pray together. And believe that something will happen as we pray. Let's pray. Lord, may you be truthful and all of us be made a liar. May you be glorious and beautiful and good. Help us to see how much we need your beauty, your goodness, your truth. Bring us to a place afresh where we see our need of you, Jesus. May my words and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. For you, Jesus, are the anchor of our soul. You are our rock, and you are our salvation. Holy Spirit, open up our minds and hearts. Bring us to truth again and again. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember the episode where the, in the office where uh, it was diversity day? Do you remember this, those of you that love the office? Do you remember that that whole day existed because Michael Scott, the primary character, was the problem? Do you remember that? That they had to bring in this consultant to help the whole office and all the workers in the office learn about, you know, sensitivity training and diversity training and all that kind of stuff. And it was all because Michael was the problem. Remember that? And if those of you, if you've never watched The Office before, do you remember the Andy Griffith episode? 
in which there was a scene in which the choir director was helping the choir learn how to sing. Do you remember this? And he started to sing the song and everybody started to sing and you could immediately notice that someone was way off key. So he stopped and then started again and stopped and started again. And then all of a sudden, Barney, who was the problem? Came down and talked to the choir director and said, I can tell someone's off. I'll just move around and I'll help identify what the problem is. So he goes back and the choir director starts singing again and guess what? Everybody knows Barney's the problem. I want you to understand that what's happening in this passage, don't, I don't want you to miss the point. I don't want you to miss the point of this passage. The Apostle Paul is anticipating a real and universal problem. And this is the problem. We always are aware of other people's shortcomings. And because we're so bent toward noticing everyone else's shortcomings, we are blind to our own. We're like Barney. We are like Michael Scott. We, we are the problem. That's the point. You are the problem. I am the problem. We are the problem. You get it? So where we're going this morning is I want you to know that we're the problem. And I want you to know that there, these are the two stops we're going to make along the way. You too, not the music group, but the words Y-O-U-T-O-U too. And secondly, we're going to think about this, no partiality. So that's where we're going today. You got it? Now there's a lot in these verses, and if you have lots of questions afterwards, I'd be happy to meet with you and talk in more detail. Well, let's jump in. Let's remember that we are the problem, or maybe be open to the idea that you might be the problem. How about that? Maybe, maybe you can pray for me, that Dave would be open to the idea that he's the problem. Let's jump in. The first 10 verses are talking about this idea of you too. So remember, Paul has just been talking to a group of people in the church in Rome who know God, are without excuse, and he's telling them that God is not indifferent to the world. Do you remember that? He's talking to that group of people, and there is another group of people in the church who would hear all that the Apostle Paul is saying about this group of people that know that there's a God, are without excuse, and that God is not indifferent to the world, and this other group of people in the church, they are the churchy type. They're the real religious people. They've been around the longest, and they hear what's going on with this other group, and what they think is, man, I agree. Those people, they know there's God. They know God. They're without excuse for the way they're living. And God isn't indifferent to the world. As a matter of fact, they're the problem. And Paul looks at them and begins to talk to this group of people in chapter two, the people that are super religious and really churchy and know a lot about religious things. And he looks at them and he says, you too. Those of you that are religious and know an awful lot about the things of God, you're the problem too. Don't, don't think that they're the problem over there. Recognize your own situation. Notice what he says at the end of verse 2, I think. You do the same things. Did you notice that? You do the same things. I can read it to you. 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What Paul's thinking about is that list at the end of chapter 1. That list that begins around verse 29 of chapter 1 and goes all the way through verse 32. Remember the last two things on the list because I want to refresh your memory a little bit. He says that you are heartless and ruthless. Those are the last two things that are mentioned. A heartless person is someone who is unable to put themselves in someone else's sandals, someone else's loafer, someone else's ultra boost. They can't put themselves in anybody else's shoes. All they do is think about themselves. They, they have no sympathy, there's no empathy. They're heartless. It's, their life is just about them. And then, ruthless which means that the way that we interact with one another is this, what can I get out of you? It means that the interest between me and someone else is that I desire to exploit, and no one likes to hear that, right? So let's, let's soften the language a little bit to get the same thing, transactional. As long as I can get from you what I want, I'm good. In the moment that you get out of accord with what I want, you're, used, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. So when you put those two things together, you realize that the Apostle Paul in that list is not so much talking about behavior, although that is there. He's talking about attitudes and dispositions. Remember, churchy people, um, religious people love the lists. They don't so much like to think about their own attitudes and dispositions. They don't so much like to think about the attitude of their heart toward other people. In other words, the Apostle Paul mentions the word law an awful lot. And you see, what the Apostle Paul is trying to get this religious group, this churchy group to recognize is that they have misunderstood the law. They've misunderstood the law. Let me explain. There's one view of the law that is incredibly shallow. It's the kind of view of the law that hears the commands of God that say, uh, don't murder and don't steal. And those that are super shallow in understanding the law of God hear this. Great. So as long as I don't stop someone from breathing and I haven't stolen any candy from sheets, I'm good. You see, the the shallow understanding of the law is always meant to be self-justifying. So God says, "Don't, don't murder and don't steal, then guess what? I've never snuffed anybody out before. I've never stopped them from breathing and I've never stolen anything. I'm great. Here's the other view of the law. This is the real view of the law. You can hear this reiterated by Jesus. The Apostle Paul is doing the same thing here. Here's the other view of the law. This is the real view. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at someone in a lustful way, you have committed adultery. You get it? It's not just if you have acted in a certain way, but it is the disposition of your heart to lust for something. Keep going deeper, okay? Keep going. Keep going and pushing into this. What Jesus is saying is that if you treat people like a piece of meat, you've missed it. 
If you treat people as if you can just do what you want with them and there are no consequences and it doesn't matter, you don't understand how you should relate to people. If you look at people as they're less than you, you don't understand people. If you look at people through the lens of power, you don't understand people. You see, the law is meant to describe a beautiful person such that no matter who I come in contact with, I respect you because, of, because you were made in the image of God. You have intrinsic worth. You have value. You matter because God made you. And that means that I'm going to respect you. That means I'm going to honor you. That means I'm going to listen to you. That means I'm interested in your story. That means I'm interested in having a healthy relationship to you. Do you see how that describes a beautiful person? That it's not just, well, I, I'm, I don't think about this person as a piece of meat, so therefore I'm good. No, it's that you actually care about everyone. The law of God is meant to communicate, if you really understand it, it's meant to communicate a comprehensive, beautiful person's life in their attitudes and in their actions. So that, guess who is the most beautiful person in the world? Starts with J and ends with Jesus. Thank you. So when you look at the law of God, if you're only thinking of it in a superficial way, then you're just looking at the law to justify yourself. But if you look and see how all the commandments relate and how they're describing the heart, then who, guess who you get to see in the law? Jesus, the one that looks at you with incredible worth and value, who never tries to exploit you, who has never been ruthless and never been heartless. You get it? The law is beautiful. And Paul is saying to this group of churchy religious people, you think that if you just follow the shallow understanding of the law, you're good. And yet, you're not. You do the same things. Well, that's why you have these descriptions. Look at verse one. You're judgmental. You judge all the time. Look around verse four and five. You don't repent. There's no repentance in your life. Matter of fact, admitting you're wrong is like the thing that you don't most, is, is the thing you most don't want to do. Repentance is excruciating for you because you're trying to keep the image up. So you have an impenitent heart. That's why Paul is descri he's describing this group that's in the church. Then, not only does he describe them, but he moves on in verses six through 10 to talk about this under this idea of you too. He talks about the most wonderful judge. The most wonderful judge. And you might not see that on the surface of verse six through 10, but let's go through it and I think you might. Verse six starts out with this. You'll be judged according to your works. You see that? See that in verse six? I do want a response. Is it there? Okay, good, I didn't make that up. You're gonna be judged according to your works. Now remember, these are churchy people that know their Bibles. This is taken from Psalm 62 and other places. David is writing Psalm 62 and he's describing two different types of people. 
In verse 1 of Psalm 62, David is describing those who find rest in God alone, who see that God is their salvation. Then in verses 3 and 4, he's talking to another group of people, and they're the ones that want to kill the king. Do you ever know that when David was king, he had people coming after him? You know what it's like to be in a position of authority where people are coming after you? David was writing as someone who had people that were after the same thing he was. And there were other people that wanted him out of office, gone. And in verse 12 of Psalm 62, God says, for he will judge everyone according to their works. You see, here's the thing. This is the beautiful part about this. Mm. How do you live your life? Just the standards that you have for other people, how do you measure up to your own standards? You see, when he says in verse seven and eight and starts talking about this description of those that seek um, immortality and, and glory and whatnot, and then there are others that are self-seeking and are not interested in doing what's right but are interested in doing what's wrong. He's talking about the evidence of someone's life. Just like those who were around when David was king, some of them were finding rest in God and others were wanting to get David out of office. You see, Paul is talking about, you do realize that God is going to judge you based upon your works because your works are evidence of where your faith is. Your works show what it is you believe. Whether you are seeking glory, whether you are seeking honor, whether you're seeking immortality, or whether your faith is in yourself and you don't really wanna hear the truth or do it, you just wanna serve yourself. You see, God is amazing. Because he looks at each one of us, and I'll say it again, he looks at each one of us and says, how do you relate to people? Do you hold yourself to the same standard? So when you look at your life, like literally, think about your life. You hold people to this standard, and then this one's yours? Your standard for people's way up here, but the standard for yourself, oh, it's, it's pretty close to the floor. You see, that's why verses seven and eight and nine or 10 are basically saying the same things back to back. Because he's wanting us to think about what does it look like when we interact with people? This is an old illustration that I uh, borrowed from someone else and brought up into the 21st century. So let's just imagine that you have a weightless and invisible DVR attached to your body. And it is recording everything about you. Not just your actions, but your thoughts, your innermost thoughts. Not just your deeds, but your motives. Just imagine that you have a weightless and invisible DVR recording everything about you. Well, the day is coming in which God is gonna take that DVR and he's gonna set you up in front of it and hit, the, hit, hit play. 
And the sole basis of him judging you is based on how you related to people and if you held yourself to the same standard that you hold everyone else to. Don't you think that's incredibly fair? You see, that cuts across the grain, whether you say you follow Jesus or whether you don't. It's just saying, however you've structured your life, do you follow that? That's incredibly fair. Because it doesn't even matter if you believe in Jesus or not. Just if you've done what you think should be done to you, to other people. Well, that moves us into verses 11 through 16, where verse 11 starts out with this amazing statement that is our second point. With God, there is no partiality. You see that? No partiality. There's no partiality with God. So then when you start reading 12 through 16, you start realizing that Paul is again addressing these two groups of people in the church. Remember, he loved this church, just in case you're visiting with us and haven't heard this part. He wrote this letter around 57 AD. He wrote it to a church that he didn't plant. He wrote it to this church that was in the middle of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world at the time. He wrote this to them because he loved them and cared for them. And if you doubt that, look at Romans 16 and look at all the names. And he says, greet this person, this person, over 25 of them. He knew people in the church, even though he didn't plan it and even though he'd never been. He loves these people. Someone that cares about you is gonna speak directly to you, especially when you have a relationship. And the deeper the relationship, the more people can speak directly to each other, right? And he's addressing us and reminding us that God has and shows no partiality. And he's applying that to the people in the church. Some have a non-Christian background and the others are super religious. And to those that are uber-religious, the Jewish aspect of the church, the Jewish part of the church... He says, look, you've been given the law. You come from a long lineage of people that have been entrusted with the law. It's beautiful. God has given it to you. He hasn't given it to everybody. He gave it to you. But just because you have the law doesn't mean that you're good with God. Just because God gave you his word doesn't mean that you're good with him. It actually means that if you don't do it and don't understand the purpose of his word, you're not in a great spot with God at all. And you you understand why Paul would say all this, right? You understand why Paul's making such a big deal about this? Because that's who he was. (laughs) Remember? He was the guy that was like, I'm Jewish. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I've obeyed everything. God has a special concern for these ethnic, for this ethnic people group. He used to think that way. He used to think that the Jews were important just because of their ethnicity. He used to think that they were important because God had given them the law and that made them right. He makes such a big deal about this because he used to think it. And that was the way that he lived. And now he's telling them, no, 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 no. Just because you've been given this doesn't mean that you're right with God. And then he turns to those that didn't have that kind of upbringing. And he says, and and look at those who 
were not given the law. And, and they walk around and for some reason, they know instinctively to do what God's law says. Let me bring that into your life because I don't know anyone here who is Jewish, although there may be someone here who is Jewish, but not that I know of right now. I'm sure you can tell me afterwards. He's talking to us and he's saying, look, um, did anybody ever have to teach you that murdering was wrong? Probably not. Anybody have to teach you that stealing's wrong? Probably not. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. It's written on your heart. God's character is written on your heart so that instinctively we know that murder isn't good. We know it. And yet Paul says, and those of you in the church that are super religious, look at those who don't have the same upbringing you did and, and look how they follow the law even though it wasn't given to them. And those of you that follow the law when it wasn't even given to you, that doesn't even save you. So that whether you're here and you have churchy descent or you don't, we all got a problem. We're it. We're the problem. We don't measure up. No matter our religious heritage or not, we are the problem. That's why Paul ends this section by reminding us, everyone has the law, and then verse 16, everyone needs the gospel. Everyone. Look at how he ends, verse 16. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now this is the real power of this passage. This is the real power of this text. This is where, if we will admit that we're the problem, we can find change. This is where we can find peace. This is where we can find comfort. This is where we can give credit and glory in the one that deserves it. Because Paul says, whether you've been given the law or not, whether you follow it or not, the gospel is what everyone needs. Now, we're not there yet, but we're gonna fast forward to the end of this chapter. Because Paul, at the end of this chapter, talks about this idea of circumcision. You can see it in verse 28 and 29 of this chapter. And we're gonna come back to it in a couple weeks. But in order for us to understand the gospel, you gotta think through circumcision from the vantage point of a Jewish person. Now, I know we're going deep today, I'm sorry, but it's what Paul is doing. It's where he's taking us, it's where he's gonna land, it's where he's getting us with the gospel. You see, Paul knows that what it means to be a Jew is primarily this. Um, we've been given the word of God and circumcision is the proof that we follow it. So that there are many who think well, if you're ethnic Jew, you're right with God, and you're special, you're different, just because of your ethnicity. And Paul says, you know what? Just because you're outwardly circumcised doesn't really matter. You notice what he says in 28 and 29? If you have your scriptures, you can read it. He says, it's not the one who is 
outwardly circumcised that matters, but circumcision is a matter of the heart. Let's keep going. You see, way back, there was this guy named Abraham. And God came to Abraham and he said, I am going to bless you and I'm going to affect the whole world through you. Abraham, I'm after you. Abraham, you're going to be mine. I'm going to love you. I'm going to change you. And you are going to be what I want you to be. And back in the ancient, ancient world, whenever people's relationships are bound together, they didn't have a contract like you would sign. What they did is they had a sign of the relationship that actually acted out the consequences of not keeping your word in that relationship. You follow me? It's not that God said, Abraham, I need your signature right here on this document, and then we're good. God said, Abraham, you're going to be mine. He preached the gospel to Abraham, and therefore the whole world has changed. And Abraham, circumcision is going to be the sign. You see, circumcision was a sign of something being cut off. You know, so other, there are other times in the Bible in which God binds himself to people and says, you know what, let's get some animals and cut them in half. And if I'm not faithful, if you're not faithful, then may it be to us as these animals. Still follow me? There were signs of the relationship that acted out the consequences so that circumcision was a sign of being cut off. So if you didn't keep your side, you would be cut off. So let me ask you, did Abraham perfectly keep everything? I need an answer. Okay, how about Isaac? Jacob? I'm seeing a pattern here. David? No, no one has kept their side. And how in the world does God have a people? How in the world has he expanded his church and grown his church? How has that happened? You see, the Apostle Paul writes about circumcision in another place in Colossians 2. It's a weird passage. And he says to a primarily Gentile group, hey, you were circumcised in Jesus when he was on the cross. Do you get what he's communicating? He is saying your inability to do all that God expects you to do results in the reality that you need to be cut off. But Jesus has been cut off, has been cut off for you. So that in his life and in his death, he endured being cut off so that we would be brought in. So that as we look at our own lives, we begin to realize, oh, Jesus doing all this really means a lot in my life because I can see that I'm a problem. That's why, to quote someone from more than 100 years ago, when you think about Jesus being on the cross, suffering and suffocating, dying, and he looks down from the cross and sees those who were abandoning him, denying him, running away from him, forsaking him, that it was the greatest 
act of love in the universe because he stayed. He was willing to endure the wrath of God and fulfill all of the requirements of the law so that we will be brought into relationship with God himself. So here are some questions to think about to try to press this into you more. And maybe you'll think about these this afternoon or this week. Do you find it easy to shake your head at other people? Of course, I mean that metaphorically. You find it easy to be living your life and look at what other people are doing or not doing and you just, you know, like, mm. what's wrong with these people? You find, you find it easy? You find it easy to shake your head at people? Do you realize what that says about you? Do you look forward to the day of defending your DVR being played? You looking forward to that? Do you have great hope in yourself for that day when the DVR hits, then God hits play on the DVR and you're like, yep, I got this. I can justify everything. Do you see how amazing Jesus is? Do you see that he has done absolutely everything? In other words, are you interested in experiencing glory? Are you interested in looking forward to an eternal life of bliss and awestruck joy? Do you, do you wish that God would be closer to you? Do you want to change things in your life? Do you wish things would change in your life? There's no behavior modification here. Everything that I've just said hangs on Jesus. It's only in him that all those ideas and hopes become reality. 